We all know what blessed means, right? The word blessed is used so frequently in popular culture, literature, and in sermons. It is the wealthy, the healthy, and the most powerful, what some might call the winners. But as Jesus tells it in the Beatitudes, that is not who the blessed are in the new kingdom. That's Dr. Raj Nadella. And today he brings you a challenging message of faith called, When Comfort Alone Won't Cut It. I'm Peter Wallace. It's day one. Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's historic Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Now to introduce this week's preacher, here's our host, Peter Wallace. Thank you, Sherry. Today on Day One, we're honored to have with us Dr. Raj Nadella, the Samuel A. Cartledge Associate Professor of New Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Raj is a graduate of Sarampore College in India and earned Master of Divinity and Bachelor's Degrees from United Theological College in India. He earned his M.A. degree in Biblical Languages from Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, and his Ph.D. in New Testament from Union Theological Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. The author or co-author of several books and numerous articles and essays, Raj came to Columbia Theological Seminary in 2012 as an assistant professor after serving as an instructor at several colleges and seminaries. He was named the Samuel A. Cartledge Associate Professor in 2019. Raj, welcome to day one. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. You've served at Columbia Theological Seminary for over a decade now. Give us your summary of the seminary, its students, and its program offerings. Columbia Seminary is associated with the Presbyterian Church USA, but uh, we have uh, students from several other denominations. Mm. In fact, uh, a majority of our students um, at present uh, are from other denominations. Mm. Um, we also have students from several parts of the United States and from other countries as well. Mm-hmm. Just as our student body is very diverse, our faculty are also very diverse. Um, roughly 50% of our faculty are Presbyterian. Um, the other 50% are represent a variety of other mm-hmm. uh, denominations. Columbia Seminary offers uh, six different degree programs both at the master's level and at the doctoral level. But uh, the the biggest degree program that we offer is the Master of Divinity degree mm-hmm. program. And Columbia Seminary has a new president, I understand. Yes. Uh, Reverend Dr. Victor Aloyo is our new president. He came to us from Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, he has been with us since July 1st, and he has uh, gotten us off to an amazing, rousing start. <laughs> so tell us about your portfolio there as professor of New Testament. I've been teaching New Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary for the last 10 years. My research and teaching focus primarily on the Gospels, Mm -hmm. um, the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. In my teaching and research, I employ a methodology called uh, post-colonial theory and discourse. Mm -hmm. Uh, The premise is that uh, much of the Bible 
was written in the context of the empire. Mm -hmm. In case of the New Testament, it was the Roman Empire. And much of the Bible was written not only in the context of the empire, but also from the perspective of the margins. Mm -hmm. And yet, if we look at the history of interpretation of biblical texts, um, especially uh, in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, these very same texts that were written in opposition to the empire mm. were used to justify and promote the empire. Mm, interesting. So in my teaching and, and especially research, I talk about how best to reclaim these biblical texts uh, for the purposes of liberation and to challenge the empire in its uh, manifestations in the 21st century. Sounds interesting. I, I do have to ask, who was Samuel A. Cartledge? <laughs> Samuel A. Cartledge was a New Testament professor. Um, he was born in 1903 mm. and died in 1991. He was a pastor, scholar, scholar, pastor, however you want to describe him. Um, he worked in several Presbyterian churches before taking up this teaching position at Columbia Theological Seminary. He was a gospel scholar, mm -hmm. uh, focused his teaching and research primarily on the synoptic gospels, mm -hmm. uh, and was at Columbia Seminary in the 50s and early 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, quite an influential person, I hear, and I'm honored to be um, named uh, to this particular chair, uh, Samuel A. Cartledge. I think he would be happy, too. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Raj, you have co-authored a book coming out next year with the Dean of McCormick Seminary, Steve Davidson. It's called Postcolonialism and the Bible, an Introduction. So you've mentioned this interest of your teaching, but give us a sense of the purpose of the book. Several years ago, uh, T&T Clark, uh, they are now called Bloomsbury Publishing, based in England. Mm -hmm. um, several years ago, um, Bloomsbury Publishing brought out a book-length introduction to post-colonial discourse. Um, it was authored by uh, Fernando Segovia and Stephen Moore. Um, that book um, was uh, scholarly in nature, uh, very um, much theoretical. Mm -hmm. TNT Clark Bloomsbury recently decided that they wanted to bring out a more accessible introduction mm -hmm. to post-colonial biblical interpretation. They wanted to bring out a book that would be accessible to um, college students, mm -hmm. graduate students, uh, interested Christians and pastors and scholars. Um, and so they approached uh, Steve Davidson and me to author this book. Uh, and we are honored to have been invited to author, co-author this book. Uh, and uh, we're almost finished writing <laughs> this book. Uh, it should be coming out next year. And you have a couple of other interesting projects in the works as well. Yes. Um, one of the uh, projects that I'm really excited about uh, is the Oxford Handbook of uh, Bible, Race, and Diaspora. Mm. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Mitzi Smith, um, uh, Luis uh, Antuna Menendez, who teaches at Boston University, and I, uh, the three of us, are uh, co-editing this volume. Mm -hmm. We have just started the process. We signed a contract with Oxford University Press, and we have recruited close to 40 scholars from all over the U.S., but also many other countries, to contribute uh, chapters to this book. Mm. Um, the book uh, looks at the issues of race, diaspora, and displacement um, in the Bible. Mm. Interesting. 
Raj, you've taught in various settings since 2004. How would you describe students today? What's driving them to pursue seminary education? Great question, Peter. Um, I remember having conversations with uh, students um, early on in my time at Columbia Theological Seminary. Um, they were uh, so uh, passionate about uh, wanting to get uh, theological education, uh, go back to their churches and serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were so faithful in their commitment to uh, serving the church, but also learning uh, mm-hmm. theological education. Uh, and that is still true. Um, most of the students, uh, they want to um, learn and go back to their churches and, and serve their churches faithfully. But increasingly, what I am hearing is that uh, a lot of my students are interested in issues of economic justice, racial justice, mm-hmm. and lately, climate justice. Mm-hmm. And they think that uh, the church should be addressing these issues. And they think, they are convinced that uh, these issues can be effectively addressed mm-hmm. in the context of the church, but also through the church, in mm-hmm. the public square. And that's very refreshing yeah. to see my students uh, believe and talk about how the church has a role in addressing uh, climate issues, promoting racial justice and economic justice. Wonderful. You helped put together a conference some time ago at Columbia Seminary on migration and border crossing, certainly a hot topic in our country these days. How did that come together and what grew out of it? So I was in um, Bangkok, Thailand um, in 2018, Mm. attending a conference of uh, scholars from all over the world, Um, 100 scholars. The the conference was put together by the Council for uh, uh, World Mission. And migration was one of the big topics that was being discussed at that particular conference. And as I was attending at that conference and presenting a paper there, I was beginning to realize that uh, migration was and still is such a big issue Mm -hmm. here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, Columbia Theological Seminary is in Decatur, right next to Clarkston, Mm -hmm. Georgia, which is... uh, called the most diverse square mile in the United States because Clarkston, Atlanta area, has uh, um, migrants and refugees from 42 different countries, mm-hmm. as I recall, or mm-hmm. 40 different... Something like that. Something like that. And so I began to think that uh, um, if migration is such a big issue in the United States and we are right next to Clarkston, we should be having conversations about this. And and the truth is there have been conversations mm-hmm. about the issue of migration here in the United States and at different theological institutions. There have been many. But many of those conversations were taking place in a piecemeal fashion. Yeah. And uh, I, I was speaking with my colleagues, several of my colleagues, wonderful colleagues, and it emerged in the course of these conversations that uh, it would be helpful and important to have a full-fledged conference that addresses the issue of migration and explicates the issues related to migration, not only from a theological perspective, but also from a policy perspective, Mm -hmm. uh, from an ethical perspective, uh, and from the perspective of uh, law 
Uh, and so we reached out to Emory School, uh, Emory School of Law and Religion, and partnered with them about hosting this conference. And uh, pretty quickly, um, other uh, partners joined us: uh, the World Council of Churches, uh, the Presbyterian Church uh, in the United States, uh, the Methodist Commission on on Relief, uh, the Council on American Islamic Relations, um, and and faith in public life, and mm. so on. Wow! And so what emerged was. Uh, we brought together scholars uh, representing the many different disciplines, mm -hmm. legal scholars, mm -hmm. theological scholars, but also policy people and people, activists working on the ground, come to Columbia Theological Seminary and present, offer workshops and so on. It was amazing. It was amazing mm -hmm. to see these uh, people from various walks of life come together. And we had uh, church leaders, ecclesial leaders, uh, Christians, faithful Christians attend the conference to learn and engage the issues of migration. Mm, wonderful. Raj, you grew up and went to school in India. How did it come about that you ended up in Decatur, Georgia, teaching New Testament? I was at uh, McCormick Theological Seminary um, teaching uh, part-time, and uh, um, uh, Dr. Frank Yamada, who is now the executive director of uh, um, Association of Theological Schools, uh, told me about uh, this uh, position opening at Columbia Theological Seminary. And I, I wasn't sure how to respond to it because I thought <laughs> Columbia Theological Seminary in, in the Southeast, um, and I didn't know much about Columbia Theological Seminary. What I did know somehow gave me an impression that, you know, it is a Southeastern Presbyterian Seminary. And he said, uh, you might want to apply. They might surprise you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and they did. And they did. So I um, had this initial interview with uh, Columbia Theological Seminary Search Committee at the SPL meeting in oh, San yeah. Francisco. And I walk into the interview room. And there, there were these search committee members, Stan Saunders, Anna Carter Florence, uh, Deb Mullen, and Marcia Riggs. But what stood out to me was uh, the search was run by two black women, hmm. Deb Mullen and Marcia Riggs. Uh, Deb Mullen was the dean, Marcia Riggs was mm -hmm. chair of the search committee. And that sort of surprised me in all the wonderful ways because I had these impressions right. about Columbia Theological Seminary and here I am. And, and of course, there were um, further conversations and uh, everything, everything was just amazing. What I want to say is this. Columbia Theological Seminary is uh, historically a Presbyterian seminary in the Southeast. That is very much there. Mm. But it is also one of the most progressive seminaries that that one will ever come across, mm. not just in terms of its uh, diversity, racial, ethnic diversity, nationality, and so on, but also in terms of the kind of issues that we address. Um, we are deeply committed to the issue of justice, and that remains central to our identity. So it's been a wonderful journey mm. with Columbia Theological Seminary. Great. Well, today your sermon draws from the gospel for this Sunday, the fourth after the Epiphany, from Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Would you read it for us? Listen to the word of God. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we have Jesus' well-known, much-loved Beatitudes, which must have been quite controversial when he spoke them. They still are in many ways. But I'm curious, as you prepared your sermon, what stood out for you in this text? Peter, I think you, you touched on it. Uh, the word blessed occurs uh, repeatedly in the Beatitudes. And, uh, of course, we hear the word blessed too often mm-hmm. here in the United States. And, uh, and a lot of the times the word blessed is associated with uh, prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. It's the wealthy people who are blessed. It's the really healthy people and the ones with power who are blessed. And then I look at the Beatitudes. Hmm. And there it says, no, it's actually yeah. the poor, the hungry, and the meek, the oppressed ones who are actually the blessed. And what, what also stood out to me, Peter, is I have a master's degree in biblical languages and mm-hmm. I uh, pay close attention to, um, to the language in the biblical text as part of my interpretation. Uh, what stood out to me, Peter, is the, the repeated use of the passive uh, mm-hmm. verbs in mm-hmm. the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will be comforted. They will be fed. They will be called children of God. Right. It's one thing for Jesus to say, yes, blessed are the poor, they'll be blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But, but, the, but these passive verbs raise the question of hmm. who is it that mm-hmm. is going to bless them? Who is it that is going to advocate for the people who are mourning? I had a fascinating conversation with a few people uh, three, four years ago uh, about uh, the agency in these beatitudes. Um, And uh, one of them said, well, it's the divine agency. God is the one who is going to bless all these oppressed groups of people. I think that is true. In fact, Mm -hmm. God is at work in the history of humanity, and God works actively. But what is also true is that God works through people. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, if we only talk about the divine agency, we as humans, people of God, are abdicating our responsibility in situations of suffering and oppression. And so when we see people being oppressed, we can't say, God is the agent, God yes. will take care of it. We as people of God have an obligation to intervene and advocate for the oppressed, oppressed communities. And what also stood out to me, Peter, is within the narrative context, Jesus recruiting his disciples and mm-hmm. asking them to promote the kingdom. Yeah. Well, your message is titled, When Comfort Alone Won't Cut It. Raj, thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you, Peter, for having me.
This is Peter Wallace, and I have good news for you about day one. Of course, we're all about the good news of Jesus Christ, and our mission is to proclaim that good news to our hurting and divided world. This new year promises to be an important one for the Day One ministry. In August, I'll pass the mic over to a new host and producer as I retire. What's more, I'm thrilled to announce that we have received a major grant that will enable us to create much needed new resources for preachers and lay people over the next several years. But we still need your generous support to ensure the ministry of Day One can thrive in the year ahead. Please mail your gift to Day One. 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. Or call us at 404-815-9110. Or give securely online at dayone.org. Thank you, and may God bless you in this new year. We've all watched a play or read a novel that moves at a fast pace, but suddenly slows down and presents us the quintessential part of that play or novel. In some ways, the sudden change in pace makes us pay close attention to what comes next. This is true of the narrative context of the Beatitudes as well. Jesus has been on a mission and in a hurry. He has just announced that the kingdom of heaven has come near and invited people to repent. He essentially called upon people to turn their backs on existing structures of power and join the new movement. Just a small ask. He has recruited disciples to be agents of the new movement. He went about healing every disease, sickness, and demon possession that he encountered and he acquired several million Twitter followers in a matter of days. No, the last part is not in the gospel, but everything else is. Here, in this text, Jesus slows down, actually sits down and delivers the most significant sermon of his ministry, one that becomes his manifesto for the new community. Like an effective communicator and leader of a budding movement, Jesus wants his would-be followers to know what they are getting into. The Beatitudes reveal what the new community will look like. We all know what blessed means, right? The word blessed is used so frequently in popular culture, literature, and in sermons. We know who the blessed are. It is the wealthy, the healthy, and the most powerful. They are what some might call the winners. But as Jesus tells it in the Beatitudes, that is not who the blessed are in the new kingdom. Rather, it is the poor in spirit, the people who mourn, the hungry, and the oppressed. To put it bluntly, every single person who is called blessed in the Beatitudes is what some might call the losers. The Beatitudes are a deeply subversive text in the American context, 
whereas the culture frequently associates the word blessed with the wealthy, the healthy, and the powerful. Jesus makes it clear that it is precisely the poor, the sick, and the people who mourn that are entitled to his blessings. But what makes them blessed? Surely, Jesus is not condoning their poverty, sickness, or oppression. So what does it mean for the poor to claim the kingdom of heaven? And what will comfort look like for those who mourn? The most common translation of Matthew 5.4 is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This translation does not fully capture the force of the Greek word at the end, paraklete sontai, which is actually derived from the Greek word paraklete. Every major Greek lexicon notes that in the first century context, Greco-Roman context, the word paraklete meant an advocate, specifically a legal advocate. A paraclete was someone you called to stand by your side and stand with you in order to advocate for you. Now, I know a lot of advocates. They're not in the business of handing out tissues to their clients who have been wronged. Well, they might hand out tissues. But pretty quickly, they will put their arms around their clients and say, Hey, I have got your back. I will go into that courtroom and fight for you. Within this use of paraclete, Matthew 5.4 should be translated as, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be advocated on behalf of. That is, blessed are those who mourn because someone will advocate for them. There is absolutely nothing wrong with offering comfort to victims of oppression. In fact, it might often be the first helpful response. But if someone consistently substitutes comfort for advocacy, we need to be asking this question. Whose interests are served in the process and whose needs are undermined? As Walter Brueggemann says in a recent Church on You piece, we should refuse to be comforted in the face of social failure. If we apply his insight to the Beatitudes, it would mean refusing to be in the business of comforting the oppressed when they actually need something more than comfort. If we consistently privilege comfort over advocacy, we will end up comforting the oppressor rather than the oppressed. Turning once weeping into joy takes advocacy. Not advocacy instead of comfort, but in addition to it. I remember my first English class. The teacher told us to avoid using the passive voice. He told us that the use of passive verbs amounts to bad grammar. And yet, I turned to the Beatitudes, and there is the passive verb. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be advocated on behalf of.
In fact, many of the Beatitudes are in the passive voice. They will be advocated for. They will be filled. They will be shown mercy. They will be called children of God. Which makes you ask, who will advocate for those who mourn? Who will fill the hungry? Who will show mercy to the merciful? And who will call the peacemakers the children of God? One can suggest that it is the divine passive and that God is the agent of these actions. That might well be true, but the open-ended nature of the verbs in the Beatitudes allows, even calls for the human agency. Not instead of the divine agency, but in combination with the divine agency. The human agency in the Beatitudes takes on additional significance when one reads the text within the literary context where Jesus has invited the disciples to promote the ethos of the new kingdom. The emphasis on the human agency, that is, the church and the larger community, suggests that when we see oppressed people, the question should not be, where is God when people are mourning, hungry, treated brutally by the police and denied justice in the courtroom? Rather, the question should be, where is God's community and what is it doing to address the situation of suffering? The Beatitudes offer a promise of liberation to those at the margins. They also invite everyone with privilege and power to make the liberation a reality. As followers of Jesus, we are called to advocate for the oppressed and do everything in our capacity to reverse their situation of suffering. When we see people weeping because of hunger, police brutality, or gun violence, our response cannot be limited to words of comfort. Words of comfort should become catalysts for action rather than substitutes for action. But the oppressed are not objects of our compassion or passive recipients of help. They themselves have an agency in the process of realizing their blessings. Many of the Beatitudes use active verbs in the second part. They will inherit the kingdom of God. They will see God, and so on. The active verbs suggest that the oppressed will participate in their own liberation. Rather than turn the oppressed into objects of compassion, those of us with power must acknowledge their agency and work with them to facilitate the blessings that Jesus promised. We are all blessed when we work to create the kind of community that Jesus envisioned. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Raj Nadella, the Samuel A. Cartledge Associate Professor of New Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. For a free transcript of his message today, When Comfort Alone Won't Cut It, 
Call us at 404-815-9110. That's 404-815-9110. Or write to us at Day One. 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. Keep in mind that Day One depends on the generous donations of our faithful listeners. I'm Peter Wallace. Next time on Day One, we're honored to have with us the Reverend Susan Pendleton-Jones, Senior Fellow for Christ-Centered Visioning at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Don't miss her powerful message, Salt and Light, coming next week on Day One. Our day one preacher, Raj Nadella, offers some final reflections on his sermon today, When Comfort Alone Won't Cut It. And thank you, Raj, for unpacking the Beatitudes for us so meaningfully. You began by saying Jesus is on a mission and in a hurry. He's recruited disciples, he's been healing every disease, and now he delivers what is essentially his manifesto for the new community of faith. Jesus wants his followers to know what they're getting into, you said. Sometimes I wonder if we ever follow his example here today. Do we let people know what Jesus really expects of his followers? It seems we're so desperate for new church members that we avoid sharing the challenging call of Jesus on our lives. What do you think? Uh, I I absolutely agree with you, Peter. Uh, I think uh, uh, we don't do a good enough job of um, highlighting the extent to which um, Jesus wanted his followers to be in solidarity with Mm. the people at the margins of the society. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, um, highlighting our call to stand uh, alongside the oppressed communities requires sacrifices on our part. And it's not always a comfortable thing to do. Uh, but, But that is what Jesus wants us to do. Amen. You pointed out that the common translation of verse 4 of Matthew 5 is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But that doesn't fully capture the Greek verb there, you told us. It speaks more about being an advocate. So, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be advocated on behalf of. Comforting those who mourn, of course, is important, but Jesus' followers must also advocate for them. Would you say more about what advocacy means in situations like this? Yeah. So the the Greek word paraclete um, was used to refer to advocates in in the first century context. And in case of the Beatitudes and throughout Matthew's gospel and in other gospels as well, um, Jesus' advocacy was about standing alongside Mm. uh, oppressed communities and uh, when needed, putting his body on the line for them. And Mm. he does, right? He does place his body on the line for oppressed oppressed communities. Uh, Yes, he was certainly comforting them, uh, and that's very much important, Mm -hmm. but uh, he doesn't stop with comfort. He goes further and and advocates for the oppressed communities. And I think uh, we don't often talk sufficiently about uh, advocacy as an important Mm -hmm. part of uh, Christian ministry. Yeah. 
The Beatitudes offer a promise of liberation to those at the margins of our society, you said, and they also invite and require everyone with privilege and power to make the promised liberation a reality. So when we as followers of Jesus see people weeping because of hunger or gun violence or whatever it might be, our response cannot be limited to just comforting, as important as that is, it must be followed by meaningful actions. You've talked about advocacy, but can you give us an idea of how churches might address these needs with concrete actions? Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, incarceration is uh, a a huge problem Mm -hmm. in the American context today, primarily because uh, most of the uh, people who are incarcerated are African Americans Mm -hmm. and uh, other marginalized uh, communities. Mm This is one issue where the church could intervene. Uh, In fact, uh, the Presbyterian Church USA, of which I am a part um, a few years ago, uh, raised uh, money uh, to be able to help with bail money for incarcerated people. Uh, So this is an instance of how the church can actually uh, leverage its financial power uh, to uh, advocate on behalf of people who Mm -hmm. have been wronged. But it it doesn't, it should not stop with leveraging the financial means. Uh, Churches should also be in the business of uh, um, trying to influence uh, policy decisions about incarceration. Churches should also leverage their resources and uh, influence to address uh, uh, predatory practices such as payday lending. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are some concrete issues where the church yeah. could be making a difference. And, uh, Peter, the truth is uh, the church in the United States has power. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the people on the Capitol Hill, a lot of the people uh, on the Wall Street uh, are Christians, or mm-hmm. at least um, they are. They call themselves Christians. And a lot of them uh, attend church on a regular basis. And so as ministers, as people who preach the word on a regular basis, we have an opportunity to use uh, the the power that we do have uh, to make sure that uh, um, Christians who have financial power, who have policy power, use their offices to, to address issues of economic justice and racial justice. Mm-hmm. Raj, what's one thing from your sermon today that you hope our listeners will carry with them in the days ahead? I think... One thing that I want to highlight, Peter, is that uh, how we translate matters. Um, Do we look at paraclete and translate it as a comforter, Mm. or do we translate it as an advocate? And of course, uh, the two are very, very different. They're Mm -hmm. not mutually exclusive, but they're very, very different. Uh, And so um, as people who preach the word, as scholars who exegete these, who interpret these biblical texts, uh, we need to pay close attention to uh, individual words and what they meant within that particular context um, and and what they might mean in our context today. Mm -hmm. Raj Nadella, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Peter. Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on Day One and forever. Forever.